You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. So good to have all of you out here this morning with us as we study God's Word and get to continue in our series um, in the Gospel of Matthew. Would you please pray with me? Father, we do praise you and thank you uh, for your good and kind King. And God, we thank you, God, that even in difficult situations, you've always responded rightly in how the Father would have you to respond. God, teach us from your wisdom and your example of how to have the discerning heart with God to make the right decisions in today's life. I pray, God, that you would be with us as we study your word. As always, God, hide me behind your cross. Father, I pray that you take the little I have and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. We praise you and thank you for the word that we have. Pray that you would help us to understand and rightly apply what your scriptures teach us today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So as you guys know, if you've been following with us for some time, we're now in Matthew 22. But remember, in Matthew 21, it began the last week of Jesus' life. And at the point of Matthew 21, everything starts to slow down. Everything starts to, it's it's meaningful, and everything now is much more intentional. Because we witnessed Jesus' deliberate attempts to demonstrate that he was the Messiah, the one who was prophesied to be Savior of the world. And up to this point in Matthew 21, we have already seen several aspects of Jesus' authority as a Messiah. Remember, we saw him about a month ago now coming in on a donkey, receiving praise from the people. About two weeks ago, three weeks ago, excuse me, we saw him cleansing the temple, overturning chairs because of the exclusion and the demise of the Gentiles. We saw him... Um, Last week, as Chris Vaughn taught us from the Word of God in Matthew uh, 22, verses 1 through 7, how he taught in authority in the temple courts and told parables, even up to including the parable of the wedding feast. And now we get to a point of the story where Jesus' authority is being challenged by the religious and political elites of his day. I love what David Platt says in his commentary about this. He says this. He says, Matthew has made, up, has made clear up to this point in his gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one that the entire Old Testament pointed forward to. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom is eternal. Yet, even in light of these glorious truths, not everyone responded to such authority with submission. And last week we saw that. We saw this story of the king, the king inviting people to his wedding feast. You remember the story, right? It was the king who sent out servants to give a general invitation to the wedding. And amazingly, those who had been invited refused to accept the invitation. Later, the bank was, was prepared, and the king sent out more servants to issue another invitation, giving the same people a second chance. 
This time, the message declared that everything was ready. But those who were invited made excuses for not going, and the rest did the unthinkable. They actually killed the servants who had brought them the invitation. And from that parable last week, we see the point being clear as day. And here's the point. The point that the parable is teaching us is that to refuse a king's invitation was to reject the authority of the king himself. I'll say that one more time. To refuse a king's invitation was to reject the authority of the king himself. Church, it's a good reminder for us today, looking at this example of their refusal to come to that wedding feast. It's a good reminder for us that unbelief can be obstinate. Like dead grass in your yard, that refuses to turn a shade or even a hint of green. Like a dead engine that refuses to turn over on the coldest winter day of the year, unbelief can be obstinate. Love what Tim Challey says about this in his blog. He talks about obedience and he says, obedience in God involves nothing less than willingly leading those who follow us and willingly following those who lead us. Even as I quote from Tim this morning, I will ask you and invoke you to pray for him and his wife as they recently lost their son, tragically and unexpectedly, a boy student actually here in Louisville, Kentucky. So please keep him and his wife in your prayers and the loss of their son. So today in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22, we witness yet another attempt of God's people rejecting the authority of Jesus. But this time is done a little different. This time is not done through outright rebellion. This time is done through deception and deceit. Look with me in verse 15. It says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. Notice that word went in verse 15. So this is an interesting strategy. Notice what they're doing. Because every attempt up to this point to trap Jesus has failed. Every attempt to try to get him to blaspheme or to speak against God or to speak against them as being the religious elite, being the Sanhedrin, has failed so far. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, so what's the new strategy that they're going to come up with? What, what new way can they come to trap Jesus? This is interesting because this passage of Scripture, Matthew 22, 15 through 22, this is the second challenge by the leaders against Jesus. You see, the Pharisees fear Christ because he was gaining the loyalty of the people too quickly. So they had the bright idea. You know what? Instead of trying to incriminate this man, instead of trying to bring evidence against him, they decided to have him incriminate himself. Hence, they plotted to ask him a question about a person's citizenship. And this question was supposed to be impossible for Jesus to answer without either discrediting, discrediting himself with the people or exposing himself as a perjurer to the Roman authorities. 
Notice in verse 15, the scripture tells us that the Pharisees went and notice what they did. They plotted. Some other versions that you may be reading from in your Bible may say they took counsel. This word plotted indicates that the ruling body of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, if you will, held an official meeting. They, they had a meeting and they plotted how they might deal with the one who was claiming to be the Messiah. And notice what they were planning. Verse 15 at the end, how to trap him by what he said. Now, I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where someone was trying to trap, trap you. I know that I have. Let me, let me try to play it out for you really quick. Phone rings. Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Is this James? Yeah, this James. Who is this? This is your favorite sister-in-law. Ooh. Okay. Where do I go with this one? When well, you have three sister-in-laws... And honestly, I do have a favorite of the three. I'm not going to tell you which one. And the one who called me actually was not my favorite, per se. All of them are my favorite. I shouldn't say that. I love you guys. I love you guys. You freeze up. You don't know what to say. Well, it must be all three of you. It's all three of you on the phone, right? It's a three-way call. Through their deception and deceit, we witnessed three realities of citizenship that I want to talk about tonight, to this morning. The first one is this, the false conception of citizenship. The false conception of citizenship. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Next, I want to talk about the false view of citizenship, verses 16b through 17. And then lastly, we want to talk about the true reality of citizenship. Now, I purposely have chosen this passage to preach on, especially after Tuesday. <laughs> after we have elected, seemingly elected a new president to the, Oval Office, to the Oval Office, to the White House, I think it's indicative of for us as a church to be reminded about citizenship, what it means, what it entails, and also what it doesn't entail. So notice with me the false concept of citizenship, verses 15 through 16a. Notice what the Word of God says. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap them by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. From the very beginning of our passage, we get some key characters in the text. They, they tell them by name. We notice the main characters of our story. We have the Pharisees. And we have the Herodians. This is very important for our understanding. The Pharisees were a religious group. They, and who, they were a religious group who opposed the Roman occupation of Palestine. And they only had one mission in mind. They only had one motto. Their motto was this. Religion is supreme. They believed strongly in the heavenly world, and they believed that all their obedience and loyalty was due to God and God alone. The Pharisees believed that religion was dominant even over government, and because they had this belief, they also despised Roman authority and taxation, and they strongly opposed paying taxes to a foreign king. This is the Pharisees. Notice with me in this corner, the Herodians. <laughs> 
This is not a religious group. This is a political party. And they supported Herod Antipas and the policies instituted by Rome. And there, if the Pharisees' motto was religion is supreme, the Herodians' motto would be the state is supreme. They believed in the earthly world and they believed that all their obedience and all their loyalty was due to Rome and Rome alone. The Herodians believed that government was dominant even over religion, and they believed that taxes should be paid to Caesar rather than to God, even to the exclusion of God, if that's what it took. Church, as we look at these diametrically opposed groups, this Pharisee group and these Herodian group, I think that it's a good reminder for us that gospel creativity is needed now more so than ever within our society. Church, don't allow this world's limited options to prohibit you in the ways that you can seek to serve our God. Don't allow the world's categories to to, to pigeonhole you to two extremes. There's an alternative extreme which Jesus will reveal at the very end. So from here, we see the false concept of citizenship. Next, we see the false view of citizenship, verses 16b through 17. Notice what they say. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Listen to what they say. Teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and you teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks of you, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In this section of, our, of the sermon, you'll see three deceptions of a false view of citizenship. The first deception is, is, is quite obvious, I think. And the first deception is quite simply this, that selfish ambition leads to compromise. That selfish ambition always leads to compromise. I love what one commentator wrote about this. They say this, they said the Herodians and the Pharisees were bitter enemies. To find them together was strange indeed, but their hatred of Jesus brought them together against the one whom they considered a common enemy. So notice what brought them together. It wasn't political affiliation. It wasn't religious belief. The Pharisees and the Herodians feared the loss of their position. They feared the loss of their influence. They feared the loss of their power. They feared the loss of their wealth. They feared the loss of their security. And therefore, they came together, not because they agreed politically or religiously. They came together because they had a mutual hatred of Jesus, and they both desired to discredit him. It's a good reminder for us as a church, just even this morning, that a person who lives for this world will become a compromiser with almost anyone to protect his or her security. And the compromise will seldom matter to that person. They don't care how they have to compromise. Love what Matthew 16, 26 says about it. It says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? 
Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? I love what Mark 8, 35 says about this. It says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, my is being Jesus' sake, and for the gospel will save it. I love what David Platt says in his Christ-centered exposition about this. He says, we must guard against a love for anything that supersedes our love for God, his son, and his kingdom. And his kingdom. So if selfish ambition leads to compromise, if selfish ambition leads to compromise, what does self-deception lead to? Number two, the second deception of false views of citizenship is not just selfish ambition, that the second deception is self-deception, which leads to flattery. Notice who was sent to Jesus. Go back and read it, if you will. Verse 16. Verse 16 says it clearly. It says, they sent their disciples to him. It wasn't the Pharisees who went. It was the disciples and if you're thinking logically, like I like to think a lot of times when I'm reading the scriptures, I'm like, what are you thinking? The, the CEO couldn't answer the questions of Jesus, so you send the, the intern? Like, what, what is that? That doesn't make sense. How, how, what are you thinking? See, the Pharisees didn't come to Jesus themselves. Instead, they, st- they sent their disciples along with the Herodians. You see, the disciples sent their, excuse me, the Pharisees sent their disciples to Jesus as a way to flatter him. Because what they thought by sending the disciples was that, man, Jesus has been eating us alive. Everything that we present to him, he's providing an answer for it. But you know what? Let's let's send our intern. Let's send our, our understudies. Because if we send our understudies to do the manipulation, Jesus won't perceive a thing. He'll just think they're coming to ask an honest question. And they went so far not just to bring the understudies, they allowed the understudies to go along with the men and women who they diametrically opposed politically and religiously. So get the picture of what they want to do. The picture that the Pharisees want Jesus to see is the Pharisees' disciples coming to him. Why are they coming to him? Because apparently the disciples and the Herodians were having a conversation. And they couldn't come to an agreement from the question, is it lawful to give or to pay taxes to Caesar? They came together. They couldn't get it. So what did they do? They both went to Jesus to get his answer. It's not, (laughs) it's clever. It is clever. It is is indeed a very clever cover-up. But it's also a good reminder for us that, listen, if you have to make that many choices, if you have to go through, jump through that many hoops to try to disprove somebody, they might be telling you the truth. <laughs> it's a good reminder for us that unbelief can be obstinate. We said it earlier, but unbelief can be obstinate. Like a child who refuses to listen to his or her parents' instructions. I'm sure some of you are probably experiencing that right now, even as you listen to me preach right now. I'm praying for you even as I preach. I really am. Like an old dog who no longer listens to his owner. (laughs) Unbelief can be obstinate. 
Notice how they respond to Jesus. They say, teacher, they said, we know that you are truthful and you teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks about you, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And even here, we see them bring forth to Jesus the lowest form of deception. We see here the lowest form of deception is seen in the insecure words of flattery. A flattery. Notice what they say to him. Teacher, or another way to say is master, right? They come to him with the right salutation. Teacher or master. Listen, we know you are truthful. We know you are true. We know that you teach truthfully the way of God. We know that you don't care what anyone thinks about you. And we also know yet that you don't show partiality. They're trying to butter Jesus up. They're trying, to, they're trying to allow Jesus to let his defenses come down. They're trying to get in Jesus' good graces so that the deception that they want to bring to him may actually come to fruition. I love what one person says about flattery. They say this, nothing in this world is harder than speaking the truth. And nothing is easier than flattery. <laughs> I, love what the, I love this one as well. It says, flattery is like chewing gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow it. <laughs> Beloved, listen to me. I say this to my children all the time in our home, and me and my wife have a, 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 a thing of saying this back to each other, but it's so true. It's a good reminder for us that the truth will always confirm itself. The truth will always confirm itself, especially in Jesus, because Jesus is the source of all truth. I love how John described him in John 1.14. It says, the word became flesh, flesh and dwelt among us, and we seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. I love John 1.17 that says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ Jesus our Lord. I love how Paul writes about this. Even in 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, now the, spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then finally in Galatians 5.1, listen to the words of Paul here. It says, it's not for freedom that Christ, it is for freedom, excuse me, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be encumbered once more by a yoke of slavery. Now notice the irony here. Notice the irony. Those who are trying to be deceptive, those who are trying to deceit, those who are trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, are speaking truth even as they want to and they have motives to speak lies. And although not intentional, everything they said about Jesus was true. He was the master or he is the master and the Lord of the universe. He is a true teacher from God. He did teach the way of God and he didn't care what men said about him. What that means is, is that men's words did not influence or change his actions. Jesus was the same if he had people following him or people going against him. 
He was the same if people liked him or if they hated him. He was the same if he was feeding 5,000 or he was being crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus' character, stand firm, stood firm. He didn't regard a person's character or a per- he didn't regard man's person. He didn't show parti- partiality or favoritism. He didn't draw near to the the wealthy and then push away the the poor and the marginalized. Neither did he just only associate with the poor and the marginalized and push away the wealthy. Jesus held the character that we all as Christians need to uphold. For me, as I studied this week, it was a good reminder for me It's a very good reminder for me because sometimes I forget this truth. And I hope that the reminder that the Lord put on my heart may encourage you. It was a good reminder for me that those who opposed Christ knew the truth about him. That those who opposed Christ, they knew the truth about him. They were just not willing to surrender to the truth. It's a good reminder for us that unbelief stands from a denial of God's goodness and his truth. Unbelief stems from a denial from a, good, a, den, a, from a denial of God's goodness and his truth. It's not always due to someone being ignorant of God's truth. That's why judgment can be seen in the scriptures. How can someone be judged if they did not know? We can be judged because we do know and we do see and we do understand and comprehend, yet we deny God's goodness and his truth. So if selfish ambition leads to compromise and if selfish ambition leads to flattery, what does self-delusion lead to? This is our third, the third deception of a false view of citizenship is self-delusion. Self-delusion here leads to the rejection of truth and condemnation. Hear, this, hear these words from Claire Christie in the book, in the Layman's Bible book commentary. She writes this, She says, both the Pharisees and Herodians were closed-minded. They saw nothing beyond themselves and the threat to their position and power. They were steeped in obstinate unbelief. Thus, they rejected the truth. And as a result, from all rejection of the truth, they condemned themselves. Again, we've said it three times, but I want to reiterate. Remember, unbelief can be obstinate. Unbelief can be obstinate. It's a good reminder for us. Unbelief can be obstinate like a, like a spouse who's lost all hope in having a beautiful marriage due to the procrastination of overdue promises and forsaken acts of kindness. Unbelief can be obstinate like the residue of food that refuses to come off one's favorite cooking utensil even after being soaked overnight in water. Notice the question that they asked. The, the question asked was simple, yet it was convoluted. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
Now the Pharisees would shout, no, 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 it's not, it's not lawful. It's not lawful to do this. But yet the Herodians would say, yes, it is lawful. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but <laughs> I know I have from time to time. And if you haven't been in a situation, let me invite you into that situation. Have you ever been in a situation where someone asks you an impossible question? A question that you just know you, you just can't answer the right way, right? So mom or dad, let me pose this question to you. Don't answer it. Please don't answer it right now. Who, who's your favorite child? Right? That's an impossible question to answer. Maybe for some. I'm the only child, so I am the, I am the favorite child. So that's there. That's there. I'll settle it for y'all and my family. It's me. Or if you're a grandpa or grandma, who's your favorite grandchild? It's an impossible question to answer. Or kids, let, let me get this. Kids, what's your favorite ice cream flavor at Grater's? Or PRP ice cream. Maybe it's not so hard for y'all, but. Or PRP ice cream corner, right? Ruby flow. Okay. Duly noted. Or for my NBA fans, I know I'm going to experience this. Your spouse is asking you during Christmas season, your spouse is asking you to watch a Hallmark movie movie on Christmas Day when the NBA season is hosting their first games of the season. Honey, will you watch this with me? I'm like, but the Lakers are about to come on, sweetie. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. It's impossible to answer. I would, I would, I would choose Lakers. I would, but that's okay. I'll videotape it and watch it with her later. Picture Jesus' dilemma. Standing there, the questions um, that that they said were used to try to entrap Jesus. If he agreed with the Pharisees and said, no, taxes should not be paid to Caesar, then the authorities would arrest him. And the people would then know that his claims of messiahship were false. If he agreed with the Herodians and said, yes, taxes should be paid to Caesar, then he would be denying the sovereignty of God and the people who so strongly oppose Rome, rule, and, and, and taxes would rise up against him. Jesus was truly set between a rock and a hard place with this question. I love what David Platt says about this in his, ex, in his exposition. He says, if Jesus told them to pay taxes, then they Pharisees could either make Jesus out to be, a, uh, to be idolatrous, giving that Caesar's image was on the coin, or they could portray him as upholding a tax system that many Jews vehemently resented. However, if Jesus had refused to pay taxes, there would certainly or surely be consequences for such insubordination to the Roman Empire. Now notice with me, though selfish ambition uh, leads us to compromise, Though self-deception leads to flattery and though self-delusion leads to a rejection of the truth, Jesus still provides clarity and direction despite all of the cloudiness that's presented before us. Notice with us in verses 18 through 22. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit says this through the inspiration of Matthew. Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax." They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things are of Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. 
Notice how Jesus refuses to fit into their category. And what they're really asking is, Jesus, whose side are you on? Are you with us, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious group, or are you with us, the Herodians, those who support the state? And Jesus sees through their false concept and their evil motives. And I love this because the Greek word here used, used here is a specific word, gnosko, which means to know or to come to know or to realize or to perceive. So this, this knowing of Jesus wasn't just a divine intuition. This knowing of Jesus was more like, yeah, I, I, I kind of see through what you're doing right now. I can see past what, even though you're presenting to me flattery, I can see your evil motives and intent, even when you don't want me to see them. And therefore, in verse 18, Jesus responds to them with that strong word, hypocrite. Why did Jesus call them a hypocrite? He called them a hypocrite for three reasons. One, they were pretending to be something they were not. They were pretending to want to know about Jesus and inquire of him. And to learn from him, but they really weren't about that. They were pretending to seek the truth when they were really not after the truth. And they were pretending to honor him when they really did not. I love what Leon Morris says about this. He says, Jesus was not deceived for one moment by their flattery. He perceived that their question was, was accurated by, but with malice. And that uh, they were not seeking information, but testing him. They are not genuinely seeking an opinion from Jesus. They speak flattering words to him and proceed to ask a question aimed at destroying him. This is not the action of honest men, but of hypocrites. So here's the question of the day. The Pharisees concoct a a, a great dilemma of what to do. They they bring this before Jesus. Jesus perceives their evil intent. So the question comes, how will Jesus respond to obstinate unbelief? If unbelief is obstinate, if unbelief is is unmoving, unwavering, how will Jesus respond to this type of unbelief? And the answer might amaze you because he responds with grace. Jesus responds with grace. Look with me in verse 19. He says, Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. At this point in the story, Jesus had every right to look at them and say, you are hypocrites. I don't have to answer your question. Get out of my face. Be gone. I'm I'm in the middle of teaching. This is the last week for me before my crucifixion. You have nothing to do with me. You, 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 You are against me. Be gone. I am done with you. You're through. He could have easily done that, but notice how Jesus responds. He responds in grace. And like God, Jesus pursues these men. And Jesus pursues us, especially when we get it wrong. I think we can get an amen there. In the very beginning, we see this heart of God. We see this pursuit of God where God loves to pursue us even when, especially when we are wrong. When we don't get it, when we're afraid, when we're weak, when we're being deceptive. 
In the garden, God asked Adam one simple question. Now, if I was God at that time, I would not ask him this question. I'd probably ask him a different question. He asked Adam a, a specific question, but he could have asked him three other questions. Notice what God didn't ask Adam. God didn't say, hey, Adam, what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? That would be a question of responsibility. What, what did you do? He could have asked Adam when, he, when that fruit was eaten, why did you do it? Adam, come on, get reason with me. Help me understand. Why in the world did you do this? He could have asked him uh, the question, Adam, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to clean it up, Adam? That's a question of retribution. You see, our God is not about, he, he, he is not mostly concerned with responsibility of, of what he did. He's not mostly concerned the reason of why he did it. He's not mostly concerned with the retribution of what he's going to do about it. You know what was God on God's heart and mind when Adam and Eve took that fruit and undid everything that God did in Genesis 1 and 2? The one thing that was on his mind was, Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And that's not a question of, responsibility. It's not a question of reason. It's not even a question of retribution. It's a question that, that ascertains to the thing that God loves the most, which is relationship. Where are you, Adam? You're not where I left you. Your, our relationship is broken. Our relationship is not the same. Where are you? This is, is, what, this is what's on God's heart and mind. When the most egregious sin that ever has happened in all the scriptures happened, he wants to know where his image bearers is. I hope that encourages you. I hope that encourages you. That God loves you and he wants, he desires to have a relationship with you. And it's not just to talk about the sins that you've done or what you're going to do about your sins. God loves you because he loves you and he pursues you with an everlasting love. And what that love does is it unlocks my, my, my unbelieving heart. It, un, it unlocks it so that I can love God back in return and give him my all and my best. God, I can't, I can't give you everything you deserve, but I'll give you what I can give you. And I'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The thing that God is most after, guys. It's relationship. Relationship. How he, we just sung it, oh, how he walks with me. I, oh, oh, how he talks with me. Oh, how he tells me what? I am his own. That's what God is after. He's after you and relationship with you. Loving you, loving him and finding your delight and joy in him is, is his delight. In all, and in all of the, the grace that I don't have, in all of the, the mean-spiritedness that I would want to give these people, Jesus instead does not give them a, a malicious attack in return. What God gives them is what he gives all of us, which is the grace of God. And this grace is seen with the statement. He says, show me the coin used for the tax. This is a good point for us to say. I love what David Platt says about this aspect in the scripture. He says, God's kingdom is not of this world. 
And though we have certain responsibilities as earthly citizens, our entire lives should not be devoted to his service. Excuse me, our entire life should be devoted to his service. Excuse me. Paying taxes does not have to indicate one's ultimate allegiance. Notice what he says in verses 20 20 to 22 as we close. He says, whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Notice that there are some things which belong to Caesar. There are some things that belong to Caesar, earthly citizenship, if you will. And an earthly citizenship means that there are things which belong to Caesar, but not necessarily to God. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't own these things. It just means that It just means that God has allowed us as being human beings, embodied human beings within this world, to give back to the rulers and give back to the governments the best thing that that we can ask if it's not against our conscience or if it's not against the scriptures in which God has provided. And in responding in this way, in responding that then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, Jesus is inevitably forcing the Pharisees who believe that religion is supreme. He's forcing them to admit that there are some things that belong to an earthly power. That you can't just be so heavenly minded. You can't be so heavenly minded that you forsake the reality of your embodiment. You see, the image on the coin was Caesar's. The description on the coin was Caesar's. The coin had been made by Caesar's government. Therefore, the coin was Caesar's if Caesar said it was due him. And the point was clear. Since the Pharisees used what was owned and provided by Caesar, then they owed Caesar what was due him, namely the coin or the denarius. So he said, give to them then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But on the opposite end, he then speaks, And notice how he says that some things belong to God. He says some things are not just earthly, some things are heavenly. And a heavenly citizenship are those things which belong to God, but don't belong to Caesar. And he he declared unequivocally to the Herodians, who believe that the state is supreme, that there is a spiritual world. And what he's saying to them is that God God is and God exists. And there are some things which belong to God. Actually, all things belong to God. Let me rephrase myself. And the point was clear for the Herodians that that what was used and owned for them can be used by God. Excuse me. Since the Herodians used what was owned and provided for by God, then they owed God what was due him. So Jesus says, give then to God the things that are God's. Love what Leon Morris says about this really quickly. He just says, the most significant part of life is that which belongs to God. Rendering to God what is God's is accordingly the most important duty we have. We should be clear, too, that Jesus is not saying that we can divide life into separate compartments so that God has nothing to do with what, that section which belongs to Caesar. The obligation to God covers all of life. We must serve Caesar in a way that is honoring to God. So what's the solution? What, what does God call us to? He doesn't call us to uh, believe that the religion is supreme. He doesn't call us to believe that the state is for supreme. What he calls us to is dual citizenship. 
And in dual citizenship, it simply means this. In our, we, are, we are citizens of both this earth and we are citizens of heaven. And in our earthly citizenship, our citizenship in the nation requires that we pay money for the services and benefits that we receive. But in our heavenly citizenship, our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven requires that we pledge to God our primary and ultimate obedience and commitment. This past week, I got to see a good example of this um, driving around. I'm sure you've probably seen this scene as well um, as you kind of go around the city. But has anyone seen the Tom Drexler vans? You know what I'm talking about, Tom Drexler? No? Okay. Nobody? Nobody seen that? Okay. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, I was driving around uh, this, this week and uh, taking my kids to school, coming back home from, from dropping them off. And... Uh, I saw this Tom Drexler car, and it was just driving erratic. I mean, it was driving everywhere on the road, cutting people off, doing all these things. The guy was in the car, you know, smoking a cigarette and all that stuff, and nothing against smoking, but, you know, he's smoking a cigarette, just aloof about what he was doing. And I was just thinking to myself, like, if Tom Drexler saw you driving this way, he would be highly disappointed because he was just not representing him in the most appropriate way. I mean, he was just honking at people, turning people. I was like, bro, do you know you're driving this van that has this God's face on it? You represent some, something so much bigger than yourself? To be dual citizens means just that for us as well, right? That, that we represent something so much bigger than ourselves, right? That when, we, when people look at us and they see us and how we respond on Instagram or on Facebook or TikTok or how we respond to loved ones or even our enemies, how we respond, it, it speaks to something so much greater than just ourselves. It speaks to the kingdom. It speaks to the goodness and reality of God. It speaks to his goodness and his truth. It, it, it speaks to us being embodied people who, who have the Holy Spirit living within us controlling us, speaks to the reality of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. I love this final quote from Leon Morris. He says this, he says, whatever is due to the emperor must be paid. But Jesus did not only say that, he reminds his hearers that in addition to their obligation to the state, they had an obligation to God and those too must be rendered. We are at one and the same time citizens of some earthly state and citizens of heaven. The obligations of neither must be neglected. We are made to realize that there are limitations to the things that are Caesar's, but people must never allow their obligations to the civil state to encroach on their payment of the things that are God's. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and praise you for you're a good God, a good king. We look to you with much hope. Thank you, God, that you are a God who's able to take difficult, almost impossible situations, <coughs> excuse me, and bring clarity, <coughs> excuse me, and bring clarity, God, and bring um, finite answers, Lord, so we can understand what thus says the Lord. I pray for that same wisdom for us as a church. I pray that you would grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus in every way. May he be made much of even now. Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice who are struggling right now with unbelief. God, would you, God, give them by the power of your spirit, would you give them and encourage them to, to see and to realize, God, um, the reality of God is real, that the reality of the empty tomb is real, and the reality of the gospel is real. Encourage your people right now. God, 
unbelief is obstinate, but God, you moved any, <laughs> any hindrance of unbelief by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, uh, from, from the grave for, our, for the forgiveness of our sins. So we pay homage to you even now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.